0: Luke chapter 11, we are going to finish the Missio Christi series. This will be the 21st teaching in Missio Christi. The title of this one is simply pray. We're just going to look at three quarters of a sentence here in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Then we're going to talk a bit about prayer as it pertains to mission. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, just three quarters of it. It says, and it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's pray. Lord, that would be our prayer right now. Father, I thank you for a church that prays. I thank you for the individuals in this church that pray. I thank you for a multitude of intercessors and prayer warriors. Thank you for people that, that carry your cause and bear your burdens before the throne of grace daily. Thank you for all those that come to our prayer meetings that are interceding for missionaries in the community and our churches. I thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for that. And yet we would ask for more. We would ask for a greater spirit of prayer to be working in our midst. We would ask for a greater fervency. We would confess even a degree of prayerlessness, Lord. I would confess it in my own life and ask for a fresh work. Lord, multitudinous books have been written on why we need to pray. I've preached many sermons on this. What we need is a move of the Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to transform us. We need you to begin to concern us with what concerns Christ. We need a greater revelation of the heart of God as it pertains to people and to wickedness. We need our ears to be more in tune with the voice of the Spirit leading us in prayer. We need a greater burden. And and Lord, we we already feel guilty that we don't pray enough and we found that we can't muster it up and we we can't hooray and hurrah and cheerlead it in. You've got to do it, God. You've got to do a fresh work in our hearts that that causes us to be a people of prayer. And so we ask that you would do that. We agree together in prayer saying, Lord, change us. Give us burdens to pray. Teach us to pray, Lord. We ask together that you please anoint me to teach and to preach in a way that is consonant with your character and consistent with your word and brings glory to your name among all the nations. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if there's one more thing that must be said about the mission of Christ, it is that it was soaked in prayer. If we look at the gospels we see that Jesus would go and pray in the morning. We see that Jesus would go and pray in the evening and that he would pray all night long. If we look to the gospels, we see that Jesus himself prayed often. And apparently those who were witnesses of his life, those who were most near to him, saw this as the most profound and powerful thing that Jesus did. They had seen him do so much. And yet this seemed to them to be the key thing. This rhythm of his life, this habit of his, it seemed that everything else flowed forth from this thing that Jesus did, which was to pray. And so they asked the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. It is the singular time that the disciples directly asked Jesus to teach them something. They didn't ask the Lord to teach them anything else. And when I look at it, there's a bunch of stuff I could have thought of that I would have liked to have learned. Being a surfer, I would say, Jesus, teach me that walking on water thing. I would rip if you would teach me that. (laughs) Being a taxpayer, I'd say, Jesus, teach me that thing where you go and you catch a fish, you open its mouth, and the money is in there to pay the taxes. Being a mourner, I would say, Jesus, teach me to raise people from the dead. Being a father whose daughter had cancer, I would say, Lord, teach me to heal people miraculously. The disciples didn't ask about anything of those. They simply said, Teach us to pray. To them, it was apparent that all that other stuff flowed forth from the prayer life of Jesus. Now, Christ is our model for mission. And so, what we see the early church doing then is modeling themselves after Jesus. The early church prayed all the time. Acts 1.14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So if we look at Jesus, we see that the mission of Christ involved Christ himself praying. And if we look to the book of Acts, we see that the mission of Christ through the church involved the church praying continually. And so as we endeavor to live our lives on mission, it is imperative that we pray and pray often. What helps us to move in this direction is when we realize that prayer changes things. Every time the Bible talks about prayer, it talks about it changing things, changing people, situations, circumstances, forces of wickedness and their influence, cities, nations. Things change when we pray. God has committed himself to move in response to our prayers. It's not a violation of God's sovereignty. It is an expression of God's sovereignty. And it is an explication of just how relational God is. That he has committed himself to some degree to respond to our prayers that HE WANTS TO HEAR OUR VOICE, THAT OUR PRAYERS ARE AS GOLDEN BOWLS FULL OF INCENSE BEFORE HIM, PLEASING BEFORE HIM. AND THEN IN SOME MYSTERIOUS WAY, WHEN WE PRAY, GOD MOVES. AND IN SOME OTHER WAY, WHEN WE DON'T PRAY, GOD DOESN'T MOVE. YOU HAVE NOT BECAUSE YOU ASK NOT. PRAYER MOVES THE HAND OF GOD IN EXODUS 32. God was gonna judge the nation of Israel for their idolatry. He was going to kill them and they deserved it. It was the justice of God. And Moses stood in the gap and said, God, have mercy on them. One man pleaded the case before God. One man asked for mercy. And it says there in Exodus 32, and God changed his mind. Well, that is uncomfortable theological ground. God changed his mind. The reason that's uncomfortable to us is because we know when and under what conditions we change our minds. We change our minds when one of two things is present. Either number one, a lack of knowledge. We didn't have all the information. Or number two, a mistake. We were incorrect in our assumptions. God never has a lack of knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows all things beginning from end. Actual and possible. God never makes any mistakes. He's perfect, holy, all the time. So God doesn't change his mind as we change our minds. God is not a man that he would change his mind. When it says that God changed his mind, it means that God relented from an undesirable course of action. The course of action was that he was gonna judge these people. They deserved it and he's a just God, so he's gonna judge them. But it was undesirable because he's a merciful God and he wanted to show mercy to them. And when one man asked for mercy on a whole people group, God had mercy and spared them. Because one person asked. Conversely, we look at Ezekiel 22, and God was once again going to judge his people, and they deserved it. He's a just God, but he's a merciful God. So he looked for a man who would plead the case who would stand in the gap and intercede on behalf of the people. But no one was to be found, and so God judged the people. That is radical, that God commits himself to our prayers in that way. It never violates God's will. This is a confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, we have that thing for which we have asked, 1 John 5. Always consonant with his will, but we have been entrusted with this thing called prayer, and with it comes a tremendous moral responsibility. If prayer really changes things, if it changes the plight of people, situations, whole nations, if it pushes back evil, if it brings a merciful hand of God, then we have, as his ambassadors, a moral obligation to pray. We have been given a mandate by Jesus to take the gospel into the world. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus here connects in some way his presence in our lives, his being with us, to our being on mission with him. That's the context. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach, preach the gospel. And in that context, as you are doing that, I am with you always. Living life on mission means that we experience a profound, practical sense of Christ with us. Not a cop-out that says, oh, God is omniscient. He's, or excuse me, omnipresent. He's everywhere. Or where two and three are gathered, there he is. That's true. But we're talking about the tangible, manifest, practical, discernible presence of Christ in our lives. The life on mission is promised the experience of Christ with us. And those of you, so many of you that are living life on mission, you realize the challenge and the obstacles. And so it is always making you desperate for more of Christ with you. The promise is you live life on mission. I'll be with you. The reality is the more you live life on mission, the more you want Jesus with you because of the enormity of the task at hand, the issues of the day. The more we live life on mission, the more we see our own frailty, our our own weakness. And we're encouraged by the words of Hudson Taylor, that great missionary to China, who said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. They laid hold of the promise of the great commission that if we live life on mission, Christ will be with us. And weak men were enabled to do great things for the glory of God. Consider what Charles Spurgeon said to the church about the manifest, practical presence of God. He said, if God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. God is near to a people that people want to talk to God. God. When, when, when there's not that tangible manifest presence of God, then there's no desire abounding in our midst to pray. Apply that to the individual Christian. If God is present in our lives in a profound way, not merely salvifically, but practically and intimately, the result of that is gonna be prayer. Prayer then becomes a gauge. If you have a burden to pray, if you find yourself speaking to God, calling out to God, God is near you. You're experiencing the person of Christ. If you're not clinging to Christ in that practical, tangible way, the first sign of that is a slothfulness in prayer. There's no desire to talk to him. The Christian that lives life on mission is experiencing that promise. law, I'm with you always, from Matthew 28. And then it moves him to more and more prayer as we get deeper and deeper in mission. The nominal Christian, the Christian by name, the Sunday Christian, living for their own glory and their own purposes, not the glory and the purposes of God, doesn't know what we're talking about. not that intimate, profound, powerful experience of the person of Christ in us, through us, with us, he or she is lacking a sort of missional presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit because they have not created a need for the promise of Matthew 28 law, I'm with you always to be fulfilled. They're missing the Christian experience of the power of God because they are missing mission. There's no need for that unique presence and aroma of Christ in your life. You're not on the front lines. You're not taking Christ to people. You're not seeking to expose and explain him. There's no sense of living on the front lines, be it in your own family, in your marriage, with your kids, your community, your city, your school, your work, whatever. Jim Cymbala, in that book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, says, when it comes to spiritual matters, you and I will never know our potential under God until we step out and take risks on the front line of battle. We'll never see what power and anointing are possible until we bond with our king and go out in his name to establish his kingdom. Sitting safely in the shelter of Bible discussions among ourselves or complaining to one another about the horrible state of today's society does nothing to unleash the power of God. He meets us in the moment of battle. He energizes us when there is an enemy to be pushed back. And the mission of Christ through us is the kingdom of God going forward and pushing back the domain of darkness. And when we're living on that edge, when we're pushing that is when we experience Christ in a profound way. So in a certain way, Christ is most near to us when we are most on mission. And when we're on mission, we find ourselves desperate to pray. As Leonard Ravenhill says, prayer recognizes unfinished business with and for God. The more you live life on mission, the more you realize you need to pray because you see your own weakness, your own frailty, your own inability. Listen to what giant of the faith, Andrew Bonar says. He says, God likes to see his people shut up to this, that there is no hope but in prayer. Herein lies the church's power in the world. Jim Cymbala, again, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, says this. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Our weakness, in fact, makes room for his power. And so God chooses the weak things of the world. And in that way, then, THE FEATURE THAT IS SUPPOSED TO DISTINGUISH CHRISTIAN CHURCHES, CHRISTIAN PEOPLE, CHRISTIAN GATHERINGS, AND CHRISTIAN MISSION IS THE AROMA OF PRAYER. IT'S THE FACT THAT WE PRAY TO THE GOD OF THE BIBLE THAT DEFINES US AND SHAPES US AS BEING distinctly CHRISTIAN AND NOT OTHER. WHAT SHAPES OUR MISSION AS BEING CHRISTIAN IS ITS CONNECTION TO AND DEPENDENCE UPON PRAYER. Otherwise, we run the risk of having our own mission, of doing our own thing. Remember from our previous studies that all, God, all mission is God's mission. All ministry is God's ministry. That the mission is the mission of Christ, that he's still on mission in the world. The goal is to discern what he's doing and join with that. With an absence of prayer, you begin doing your own things and not God's things. You have good ideas, but not God's ideas. And the mission ceases to be distinctly Christian in that case. Additionally, in an absence of prayer, our mission runs the risk of becoming secular as opposed to holy, of just throwing our hat in good, kind, humanitarian endeavors, ignoring the fact that only God changes people And then we have the tool of prayer to change situations and circumstances. And we degenerate into secular humanism. Good intentions, but void of Christian power. What will shape mission as being distinctly Christian is this connection to independence upon prayer. So we have to pray if we're going to number one, discover what Jesus is doing. Number two, be led by the Spirit into that thing. And number three, be empowered by the Spirit for that thing. And the more we pray, the more we get the heart of God for the world. Warren Wearsby says, when we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw, feel what he felt, and do what he did. And I'm of the opinion that in my own life and in the church of America, we we need a greater sense of the burden of Jesus for people and against evil. We need to feel a little bit more of what God feels in his love for people and his hatred toward evil. So prayer precipitates then joining in the mission of Christ, realizing that Christian mission was and is birthed in prayer, continues in prayer, is fueled by the Holy Spirit, and is armed with the gospel. That's the thing that we're called to. This life of mission that we're called to is birthed in prayer, continues in prayer, fueled by the Spirit, and is armed with the gospel. And prayer-soaked, spirit-filled, gospel-armed mission is always going to be powerful. BUT IT STARTS WITH HAVING A PASSION TO CALL UPON GOD, TO SHOW HIMSELF POWERFUL, THAT HE WOULD REND THE HEAVENS, COME DOWN, AND SHOW HIMSELF MIGHTY. AND SPEAKING ABOUT THIS, JIM Cymbala, IN TALKING ABOUT BEING ON MISSION IN AMERICA, IN THE BOOK, FRESH WIND, FRESH FIRE, SAYS, DOES ANYONE TODAY REALLY THINK THAT AMERICA IS LACKING PREACHERS, BOOKS, BIBLE TRANSLATIONS, AND NEAT DOCTRINAL STATEMENTS? What we really lack is the passion to call upon the Lord until he opens up the heavens and shows himself powerful. One of the most life-shaping sentences for me has come from the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire where Jim Cimbalist says, God will manifest himself in direct proportion to our passion For him. To the degree that we're passionate about God, his purposes, his person, his presence, to that degree, he will grace us with those things. What we lack is passion to see more of God. We're too easily satisfied. Consider the Acts. Remember the the prayer in Acts chapter four. The early church is on mission and their mission is drawing opposition, right? Because mission always brings opposition. But then what we need to realize also is that opposition brings passion. Biblically, historically speaking, mission always draws opposition, but opposition births passion. They were threatened because they were on mission and they prayed this in Acts four. And now Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm of the opinion that we ought to see more displays of the power of Jesus Christ in our churches and in our cities. I'm of the opinion that we ought to see more of his miraculous work in our midst. It's it's not that I'm caught up in signs and wonders. I'm caught up in Jesus. But Jesus does those things. Where's the Jesus that doesn't do that? Where is he? He's not in the Bible. Who is this Christ that does not work the miraculous? We need lives that testify not only of the truth and the power of the cross, but of the truth and the power of the empty tomb. That we don't merely have positional blessedness through the cross, but that we experience practical power of Christ because he's risen and he's alive and he lives in us and he lives his life through us. We need lives that are a testimony to not only the cross but the empty tomb and the resurrected powerful wonder working Jesus. I think that this is to a certain degree a matter of prayer for the church. In Ephesians 3:20 tells us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that we ask. Let's pray or think, dream according to the power that works within us. Christ in us, his spirit in us, working through us. God is able to do more, way more, this verse says, exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we're asking or even dreaming but we have not because we ask not. In some profound way, it's connected to prayer. And what we see in Scripture and in histories, is that men and women of great faith were always men and women of much prayer. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration and there's an interaction happening between a man... AND HIS DISCIPLES, AND THE MAN WAS COMPLAINING BECAUSE HE HAD BROUGHT HIS SON TO THE DISCIPLES TO CAST OUT A DEMON, AND THEY HAD CAST OUT DEMONS BEFORE, BUT THEY WERE UNABLE TO CAST THE DEMON OUT OF THIS YOUNG MAN. AT THIS MOMENT, THEY FOUND THEMSELVES IMPOTENT, LACKING POWER, UNABLE TO SEE THE MISSION OF CHRIST GO FORWARD IN AND THROUGH THEM. AND THEY ASKED JESUS, WHY WERE WE LACKING POWER? at this moment. Why couldn't we do this? I mean, this was a desperate moment. This son was demonized. This child was tormented. And your people should have been able to do something about it. And they asked Jesus why they were weak in ministry, why they didn't see more of the power of Christ manifest through them. And Jesus says in Matthew seventeen twenty, because of the littleness of your faith, For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say, This mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And he goes on to tell him that this kind comes out only by prayer. Jesus connects our prayer lives with the potency of our faith and obstacles. Are easily moved so that the kingdom of God can go forward when a fervent prayer life has yielded vibrant faith. The obstacles in our families. Who among you are parents? The obstacles for our children. The antichrist spirit of the age. The obstacles to the gospel. To relieving misery among all peoples. They're enormous. But with some vibrant faith, nothing is impossible because of the power of Christ in us, which mightily works in us. Ian Bounds says when faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. On a brighter note, Wesley Duell, who writes about revival in various places, says, We can reach our world if we will. The greatest lack today is not people or funds, the greatest need is prayer. If the church in America If the Christians on TV would spend as much time exhorting us to prayer as they do asking us for money, we would see transformation in communities. It's not that we need more money. It's that we need more prayer. And I'm an optimist about the church in America and in the world. The more I see Jesus, the more optimistic I am. I believe that the church is ready to pray and to enter into a fresh and vibrant spirit-fueled, gospel-armed expression of mission. In 1962, Leonard Ravenhill, in his book, Revival Praying, wrote, It is my solemn conviction that the most glorious hour of the church has yet to be born. All the heroes of faith have not yet been listed. All the chapters of the church have not yet been written. The greatest exploits of faith have yet to be done. I believe that. I believe that Jesus wants to do more than we're even daring to ask or we're even beginning to ask. But Alan Redpath warns and says, we will only advance in our evangelistic work as fast and as far as we advance on our knees. Prayer opens the channel between a soul and God and prayerlessness closes it. Prayer releases the grip of Satan's power and prayerlessness increases it. That is why prayer is so exhausting and vital. If we believe this, the prayer meeting would be as full as the church. I think about Shema in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. We hear very little about him in the Bible, but he was fighting among the Israelites against the Philistines. And the Israelites were trying to hold this certain plot of ground. And we read in 2 Samuel 23, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, a bean field, And the people fled from the Philistines. Israel fled in the face of the enemy. But Shema, one of them, took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. The partnership between a person and God, when the person chooses to stand his ground, to resist the enemy... When we begin to see where are all the Shema's who will see what has been entrusted to us by Christ, the inheritance that we have from him. And who would be willing to stand and to fight that we've been called by Christ to occupy, which means to hold ground, to tie down, to monopolize, to occupy ground, not to lose ground in the face of the enemy. Where are all the shamas, the men and women who will stand firm in the face of opposition and partnership with Jesus and see victory on behalf of our families and our cities? Who's going to defend the bean field? And realize that the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. They have power with God for the destruction of fortresses. And when we start to pray, then I believe we'll be able to say, as William Carey, the father of modern mission said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And so we're going to pray now. I'm going to suggest some ways that we might pray. We're going to get in groups and pray together. If you're here visiting, you're not a Christian, I realize that this would be uncomfortable for you. I I respect that. But you you, you ought to realize that that when you came to the church, you would hope that they pray. And they've probably been praying for you, right? You came here to check it out, and and it's a good thing that the church prays. It's something real going on here. I understand if it's weird for you. We're happy to have you visit. Just trip out. (laughs) Or join us. But we ought to pray this way. Number one, that God would burden our hearts with his burdens. Number two, that God would open our eyes to his mission. We'd see what he's doing in the world around us. Number three, that God would empower us and make us bold by his spirit. And number four, that God would send us out on mission for his glory. Church, you are sent In the name of Jesus, by his choosing and his doing, you are a sent people. You are meant to live for something bigger than yourselves. You have been commissioned, called, and anointed. What we must do then is pray. Get together in groups, two, three, five, whatever, and let's begin to pray these things. Let's call out on God with passion. Let's make our voices heard at the throne of grace.